0: The moon landing was a hoax. We all know that. Oswald obviously wasn't alone when he killed uh, Kennedy. And uh, and Area 51 clearly holds the body of an uh, extraterrestrial. I mean, we know this stuff, right? I mean, have you never been on the internet? <laughs> what do all these things have in common? <laughs> some are ridiculous. Uh, some are perhaps more serious, uh, but all of them contested by someone. And there are just things in this world, things that really truthfully matter. They impact lives every day. And other things are just things that make you go... (laughs) They're just absurd. But my friends, there are some things in this life that people disagree about, that are absolutely essential. And today I'm going to talk about the number one thing. Now, I don't say that uh, daringly. I say it confidently. The most important thing that people disagree on that is essential for every one of us, not just in this room, but on this planet. Today we're, uh, we're going to talk about the greatest question to be answered, and it is this How can we reconcile with a holy God? How can sinners reconcile with a holy God and escape his judgment and experience a relationship with him that never ends? Now, even at the beginning of of the church, this question was asked, an, an important question, you know, because you've got Jews who, you know, the Bible is all about the nation of Israel, and they're fumbling along, stumbling, and, and just doing some really dumb things along the way, but God keeps bringing them back to Himself. Now the church is born. God says, hey, go talk to those Gentiles about Jesus. And the question is, well, how can they come into a relationship with God? I mean, do they have to become a Jew first? The males be circumcised, and then they can become a Christian. Very important question. How does anyone become reconciled to God through this broken relationship and escape his judgment and experience a relationship with him that never ends? That's the question we're dealing with here today. And I know some of you are like, oh, he, he has gone to cause us to be shaken maybe even a little bit here in our seats. But I already know the answer to that one. Well, yeah, We're going to lay it out anyway and see what we can do. But friends, I want to encourage you to look at Romans 4. And we're going to look at uh, Paul's argument. Remember, uh, Paul has this, uh, this methodology of, uh, of a- answering questions that uh, he supposes someone might ask. And uh, he has demonstrated that already in this book. But Paul is also very methodical, and he just kind of lays out an argument here in chapter 4 that makes us consider, acknowledge, move back. And ultimately, we're in the corner, and we're saying, Paul, you're right. But let's take a look at how he gets there, friends. One of the key words we're going to notice in our text here is the word justification. Justification. And that, that that uh, once again, sounds like just a religious word that doesn't really matter because we don't already know what it means. So we're going to use this definition here of justification. Justification is a divine act by God, whereby God makes sinful men and women acceptable before God, who is holy and righteous. So the key words here is that God is taking people who are sinful and not acceptable to God, and making them acceptable to him. And uh, so justification, how can sinners ever stand in the presence of a holy God? And this chapter certainly answers that question, how men could be made new, how they can be, have right standing with God. So take a look here at the argument. It, uh, there, there's four uh, uh, statements here we're going to discover. It starts in verse 1. So, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Now, that's an interesting place to start. But when you understand that it all started with Abraham, I mean, we've got creation, we've got, uh, you know, the fall and the flood, and we've got these nations that are created. And then that's, that's chapter 11. We come to chapter 12. God steps in, and he makes a covenant with this man named Abram. He's not Abraham yet, but God gives him the name Abraham as the father of many nations. He makes a covenant with him, not a contract. If you do this, then I'll do that. That's the Mosaic law, okay? Okay. But he makes a covenant with him. I'm going to bless you. Ultimately, that's the whole thing. I am going to show my favor to you and my goodness to you. And not only you, I'm going to give you all kinds of descendants. Uh, in chapter 15 of Genesis, he, he says, like the sea of the, of the shore. If you can count the grains, of, grains of, of sand, so will your descendants be. But ultimately, he says, and through this nation... I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. And it all goes back to Abraham. So Paul says, why don't we start there? I mean, what, what should we say was gained by Abraham? I mean, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. There's that word justify. If he is made right before God based on something he does, well, then Abraham can stand back and say, look what I did. I have earned my way back into a relationship with God. And Paul is, uh, of course, uh, answering this question, are we justified by our works? Is there something we have to do that God likes so much that he just says, ah, come on in. You know, you've got to keep a really clean house. You've got to travel to a city every few months out of the year. Do you have to pray a lot? Do you have to reach some experiential level? I mean, there are all kinds of theories throughout our world. These world religions all trying to answer the same question. They know that there's a problem in this world. The question is, how do we get out of it? What's the answer to it? And uh, as you uh, would imagine, the Jews are saying, well, well, Abraham was a good guy, and he went where God told him. Well, he didn't actually go right away. He kind of delayed, and God had to keep him moving. <sighs> so is it, is it about what we do? I mean, is that not the question? You know, well, you got to go to church, you got to take communion, you got to be baptized, you got to be—well, you probably do them in the right order. If you mess that up, you're going to go to hell. Or, I mean, what happens? And it's a scary place, especially when you have to depend on someone else telling you. And let me tell you how God's going to save you. This is what you got to do: you got to give a bunch of money, you got to go to Israel three times a year, you got to put little prayers inside of a wall, and. I mean, it could be an endless list, because ultimately inside we know we're not there yet. I mean, I keep praying, I keep going to church, I keep reading my Bible, but I'm not there yet. And if I'm not acceptable to me, how could I possibly be accepted to God? Hmm. To the question, well, how did Abraham do it? I mean, that's a good question, right? I mean, how did Abraham Uh, become right with God in a relationship with him and the question is was it by works well if it was by works he has something to boast about but not before God so if we're justified by our works we get the glory yes I mean if it's something we do don't we deserve a parade I mean look at this we overcame all of this stuff look at us So if we're justified by our works, then we get the glory. But look at verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, if you want to make a note of that. Paul references Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. I mean, that was it. God told him about the covenant, about this nation. I mean, Abraham—he's—he—he's he, he he, got a, 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 a child with another woman. He's like, does this one count? He's like, no. The son you're going to have with your wife. Yeah, but I'm old. I mean, I'm—I, you know, and, and she's not a spring chicken. I mean, I love the lady, but you know, it's not going to happen, Lord. You'll have to read it. It doesn't sound exactly like that. <laughs> but the, the, the idea is the same, is they're having a hard time swallowing this promise that God says, No, you're going to have a son, and it's going to be through your son that I'm going to fulfill this covenant. And so God reminded him. He told him in Genesis 12, and by the time we get to 15, he's reminding him of this promise. And Abraham heard it. And he accepted it as true. And he believed it. And belief is always followed by an action. Faith is not something that can be hidden. And when he believed God, the scripture says, then God deposited in his spiritual account the righteousness of God. It's not what he earned, He didn't save up and keep depositing. There was nothing in the account. He was bankrupt. But remember, this this idea of justification, one of the words used is imputed. It is something given to us. It is a gift, and and Paul's going to talk about that here in just a moment. But uh, I want you to notice here in verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted. Notice that word to him as righteousness. That word counted in the, in the Greek means to credit something to someone else, to give credit that belongs to you to someone else. Okay. And so that word is going to show up 10 times in this chapter here. So, uh, so making note of that, we're talking about counting. We're talking about putting credit to someone else's account, all right? So, uh, so justification, according to uh, Abraham's experience, that justification is by faith and not works. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and look at all the options here. We got the big board of, of all the ways we could be saved well, maybe on the top of the list, it's something we have to do, or maybe lots of things we have to do. Let's cross that one out. Did you see that in your mind's eye, that big black chalkboard? We'll cross that one out. It's not by works. It's not by stuff you and I can do. It's by faith. Hearing God's word, accepting it as true, and acting on it in faith, that is it. Well, Paul wants to answer another one. Well, well, you know, what about the law? I mean, why did God give it to us to begin with? I mean, was it like filler time? You know, come on. Take a look at verse 4. Now, the one who works, I mean, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. It's true, right? I mean, you go to work. I mean, you do what you're supposed to do at your job, and at the end of the week or every two weeks or however they pay you, you're like, you owe me this. It's not a gift. You know, I've decided you're such a good guy, I'm going to give you a paycheck. You say, it's not a gift. You owe it to me, right? So, so is, is it something that's owed to us? So now if the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but it's due. So if justification by works, God would owe us salvation. Look, God, do the numbers. Figure it out. Get out your, your divine calculator. Figure it out. We, we owe it. I mean, you owe it to us. We earned it. Give it to us. you imagine standing before God? Let me tell you what you're going to give me. Blasphemous. And that, that's kind of the, uh, the idea of the law. Think about the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I mean, they were constantly doing the calculator thing. All right, we prayed a whole bunch today. Look at all the stuff that God owes us now. And I'll tell you what, sometimes that sneaks into the church, you know? Look, God, I've been going to church for 40 years. I pray every day. I know the Bible. I read it cover to cover. Oh, so many times. God, this is when I need you, and you owe it to me. Doesn't that sound not right? Friends, because it, it isn't right. That's not how God works. God is not a giant vending machine. You know, and you put up enough works credits, and he's got to give you whatever you choose. That's not how God works. It's not how families work, is it? You know? And God, when he calls us as his children... I mean, what parent does that, you know? Eh, there could be some discipline stuff, you know? Yeah, you cut the grass, it's worth, uh, you know, three hours on the internet or something. I don't know, you can work out that stuff. But but not when it comes to God. Not to overcome our sin, I'll tell you. Justification, if justification was by work, God would owe us salvation. But look at verse five. And the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It is is almost absurd how ridiculously simple this is. God simply says, trust me and I'll take care of it. Uh, How many of you have had kids uh, on the other end of the country, you know, or at school, some faraway place, and they needed to buy something? And you say, well, just go to the store. I'll put the money in your account. And that's what they do. They go to the store, and maybe they got the little card, and they swipe it. I mean, they didn't have any money in it, but you put it in for them. But they acted as if what you said is true. That makes sense? And that's what God does. Just believe me. Trust me when I say, if you trust me to take care of you, I will. If you accept as true what I have said and act on it, you will find that I have kept my promises. So what does the scripture say? Abraham, he believed God. It was counted as righteousness. So justification it is not by, by the law, because if you obey the law and you, you check every box and you go every place, then God owes you something. But that's not how it works. To the one who does not work, but believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then Paul lays out some evidence from the Scriptures. What about David? Now look, Paul went to the, for the big guys here. You know, if you if you're from uh, the Jewish faith, you want to look back at some big uh, heavy hitters. Let's go back to Abraham. I mean, he's is where God started it all. And he says, you know, that King David. What did David say about this? And he references uh, uh, Psalm 32, Psalm 32, and Psalm 51 were both written as a response to David's sin with Bathsheba and how David tried to hide his sin, tried to cover it up, tried to, you know, just, just sweep it under the rug. But look at here in verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those lawless Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so, what have we learned here? Justification is by faith, not works. Justification is by grace, that which God gives to us that is received through faith, not law. So faith, not works. Grace, not law. The contrast is grace, God gives it to you. You receive it by faith. You work for it. Somehow God owes you. No, I don't think so. So this argument develops. How can we be reconciled to a holy God when we are wholly deserving of his judgment? Well, friends, it's by faith, not works. It is grace, God giving to us what we don't deserve, not law. Then God owes us something. But here we are in verse 9, verse 9. So the the first uh, argument was that justification, again, is by faith, not works. Justification here in verses 4 to 8, justification is by grace, not law. And here in verse 9, justification is by faith alone, by grace alone. And we just tie them both together. And uh, again, Paul spends some more time on Abraham. And he answers this, the means by which Abraham was saved. Take a look. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? I mean, let's just jump in here and say, well, wait a minute. Abraham was circumcised. Is it not part of the law? See, he he did obey the law. That's why God uh, justified him. Because he obeyed the law, so God owed it to him. He's responding to this argument. So is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So how then was it counted to him? I mean, was it before he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. Just kind of undercutting that argument. No, no, Abraham was circumcised, so it was because he followed the law. And Paul says, no, I don't think so. You see, verse 11 tells us he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So, just tying up the knot, cleaning it up a little bit, Paul says, hey, hey, don't try and sneak in the, yeah, but he was circumcised thing. He was circumcised after he was justified by faith, after he believed in God, and it was accounted as him as righteousness. That circumcision was nothing but a seal. It was nothing but a seal and a and a sign, a sign that he belonged to God and a seal to remind him of God's promise. And that's verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. So the purpose, I mean, here we have the motivation. First of all, the means by which he was saved, again, was not law. It wasn't because he was circumcised. It was because he believed God. The second uh, issue that Paul talks about is why was he saved? And what was the motive for Abraham's salvation? Now, friends, this one is easy to skip over. But it answers the question that everyone who responds in faith to the gospel needs to ask themselves. It's now what? Okay, I have asked God to forgive me my sin and to take it away and based on the death of Christ for my sin, he took the penalty I deserve, that God will forgive me, and he does. But the question that must be followed is, now what? I mean, now that I am a child of God, now that I've been forgiven, now that I have the Spirit of God in me, like, a, like an engagement ring, it is a promise of the inheritance that is to come. I mean, what now? Do I just kind of diddle my life away waiting for the resurrection, you know, so I can really get to it? Or is some, there's something between saving faith and ultimate salvation? Saved from the presence of sin, certainly from the power of sin, but ultimately, yeah, from the very, very presence of sin, it's gone. What now? Paul answers that question. The purpose of why God saved him the way he did and in the context he did, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, the word father is used a number of times just in these uh, couple of verses here. In the past, we've we've talked about uh, uh, how the word son is used. You know, the son of perdition means that his life is marked by something, you know. He is the uh, in in uh, in John, John uh, in, in John's letters, John will refer to Satan as the father of lies, and here Abraham is referred to as the father of faith. You know, he is uh, our father, the father of the faithful, and uh, and the, this the, the use of the word father of does not mean necessarily by blood, but by example. He has set the example for us, and we ought to follow in his footsteps. And so he is the father of all who will believe, not, again, by blood, but by example. And so Abraham is an example for us. How can we possibly be made right with God? How will God uh, deposit in our account his righteousness in removing from us our sin? And the answer is simply one word faith. We are not saved by asking. We are not saved by praying. We are not saved by giving. We are saved by believing. It is very important if we are to communicate the gospel that we use the words the Bible uses so we don't distract from the concept the Bible has for us, that it is faith that saves. It is the, grace of, it is the response to the grace of God, God freely offering to us forgiveness, a new life, and a relationship with Him that will never last. And all he asks is that we trust in him. And so the the motive for, uh, or I'm sorry, the means of how Abraham was saved, it was faith. The motive that he might be an example for all of us. And ultimately here, I notice in verse 13, the significance for you and I. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So Paul is repeating himself for emphasis here. Again, it wasn't law, it was faith. For if it, uh, if it is the uh, adherence to the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. I mean, if if there's another way, what's the point of faith? You know, do it on your own terms. Do it on your own time. Now, Paul brings it back. No, it has to be by faith. For the law, verse 15, brings wrath. But where there's no law, there is no aggression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Now, the, the argument here is this is that God wants to make known part of his character. Remember, to, to, for God to be glorified, his character is on display. Who he is, his power, his attributes, and certainly his character. And one of his attributes is that he is a God of grace. That God gives things to us that we most certainly do not deserve. And the way to make that clear is to make it dependent on grace, not law. And faith is the only way that that can be highlighted, that God offers it to us and we don't lift a finger to add a single thing to it. It's not, well, God did a lot of stuff here, but I had to add a few things. And there are are folks that say that there there are teachings in America Uh, Very, very popular that, yes, you are saved by faith, but you also have to do these seven things, and you have to do those seven things under these seven, uh, you know, concepts, circumstances, and these people, and the more you add to it, the less it's really about grace at all. It's about your works, and so the issue here is that it is grace by God's grace or through God's grace by faith, the response of faith to the grace of God. So laying it out here, making it very, very, very clear. Verse 16 again, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. And don't miss this, and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. So again, who are his offspring, friends? If you are trusting in God, if you accept his word as true and you are trusting in him, you are considered a descendant of Abraham, who is the father of faith. You want to read more about what faith looks like? Uh, Take some time this afternoon and read through Hebrews chapter 11. In the Bible, it is known as the faith chapter. Great, great, great illustrations of those who trusted God, who exhibited faith in their life. So, verse 17. So as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, And in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, exhibiting his power, that God could create things out of nothing, God can make, though you and I, who are dead in our trespasses in sin, live in a relationship with him for all eternity, simply By responding to his grace with our faith. Trusting in him. So, justification. Hmm. is by faith alone and by God's grace alone. It is by grace alone through faith alone. Faith alone. Justification to be made right with God. For God to declare you righteous in his sight is simply in response to our trust in Him. Hmm. So take a look once again. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone. And take a look here in uh, verse 9. I'm sorry, (laughs) verse 18. Hmm. How it happens. Take a look. Paul breaks it down here for us in verse 18. That justification is by faith. Notice When it comes to Abraham in hope, he believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Again, Paul referencing back to chapter 15 in the book of Genesis. God had told Abraham, though you have tried oh so many decades... All of these years have passed and you have been unable with your wife to have a child. And now God is saying, I will give you a son. And through this son, I will fulfill my covenant. And Abraham is left to take a look. Here's reality. I have lived this for oh so many years. Decades have passed And when I do the math, it adds up and it says it's impossible. And over here, God is saying, Nope, I'm going to do it. I mean, just like no long uh, argument, no, uh, he doesn't lay out how I'm going to do it. Well, first, Abraham, what I'm going to do is uh, he doesn't do any of that. He says, I'm going to do it. So Abraham is stuck, just like you and I, saying, Yeah, but this is what I hear, this is what I've experienced. But this is what God says. This is the choice of life. Every day throughout your day, you have the choice to trust in God regardless of this stuff right here. And Abraham chose to believe God. He believed God in light of what he said. Faith is a response to God's Word. And that's what Abraham did. He heard God's Word, and he accepted it as true, and he believed. So faith in response to God's Word. Look at verse 19. Now, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. I mean, he's an old guy. I mean, he's like really old, not like me, really old. Doesn't he know anything about biology and how things shrink and how things, you know, die and I'm dying, I'm going to die? And I... But God is the one that made him. Hmm. So he did not weaken in faith. Even when he considered all of these things, as good as dead, he's about 100 years old. Hmm. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, she has never been able to conceive. I mean, why would, why would things change now? I mean, the arguments are easy, are they not? I mean, who here can't just swat away that No, It doesn't work that way. I mean, God, you designed it. You should know it. But his faith was exhibited regardless of the circumstances. No, unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Wait, how did he give glory to God? Because by believing God, he saw God's power. He, God is a God that is bigger than your circumstances, whatever your circumstances may be. Whatever it is you face, whatever circumstances you have been entangled in, wherever it feels hopeless, you have hope because God is greater than these things. You can endure it. You can make your way through it. And when you do it by faith, God will be glorified. Hmm. So faith, faith is faith in response to God's word. Faith is, is, is exercised regardless of circumstances. And faith in God is faith in his ability to keep his promises. Look at verse 21. He gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that's faith. What, what, is, what, is, what is your faith in? What, what did Abraham believe about God? So that his faith was accounted as righteousness. He believed that God was able to fulfill his promise, regardless of the fact that his promise seemed unlikely. Under the circumstances, he couldn't do it himself, but he knew God was greater. God is indeed greater. So his faith was in a response to God's Word. His faith was uh, exhibited regardless of circumstances. And his faith in God was focused on his ability to keep his promise. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But I want you to notice this. What was the content of his faith? Well, verse 23 tells us, but the words, it was counted to him, they were not written for his sake alone. This is not recorded in Genesis chapter 15 and 6, for Abraham's sake, my friends. It is recorded there for me and for you. It was for, but for ours also. It will be counted to us. That's you. That's me. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised the, from the dead our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. The content of Abraham's faith was God. It was God's word and God's promises, just as the content for our faith is what God has revealed to us, that Christ died for our sin and he rose from the dead. It is the gospel laid out here clearly for us. And so sinners, you know, me and you, are justified by grace through faith, but the responsibility to respond to God's grace is now in your lap. It is there for you to make your decision, will you trust in him or not? And so I challenge you to respond to God's grace by trusting in Jesus. If you are here today and you're hearing this for the first time, wait a minute. So what you're telling me is that I'm a sinner and I deserve eternal separation from God. Hell. Yeah. But God loved me so much that he sent his son to take that penalty instead of me so that I could have life. Yeah. See, that's grace. That's grace. God giving to us a substitute, a perfect substitute who would die in our place. And all he's asking me to do is trust him? Yeah. And God's faithfulness certainly should make that easy. But you know to trust in Christ will change your life. And ultimately the challenge is this. Do you want to keep living in your life of sin or do you want new life? And new hope, and new purpose. Hmm. The challenge is to trust in Jesus. And if you have uh, trusted in Christ, live out your life trusting in the God who saved you. I mean, put your faith to practice. You're not just saved by faith, you're called to live by faith. Hmm. So if you're saved by faith, and it's only reasonable to live by faith. Consider this. Perhaps you are um, an individual that uh, believes that abortion is wrong. Yeah, Perhaps you say that, that, that this is the murdering of an innocent life, a baby. This is, yeah, And you, you know, you, you to, to argue, well, no, it's just body parts in there. Well, that's all we are, aren't we? Body parts. And perhaps, because of this... Uh, This position that you have taken, every November you march into the voting booth and you've done your research and you know who agrees with you and you only vote for those guys. And maybe you vote the opposite of whoever it is that doesn't agree. But when you walk out of the voting booth and that's it, you do nothing about it. You're not writing any car. You don't uh, adopt children at risk. You don't counsel people. You don't support people who do. Can you really say you're against it if voting is all you do? I mean, really? I mean, how much does it really matter if you're not really willing to take action on something? I mean, the same is true, I would imagine, that if you're seated here today... And you believe adamantly, passionately that Jesus died for your sin. He rose from the dead bodily. I mean, He was seen. There was witnesses. And that God says if you trust in Him, you'll be forgiven of your sin, made right with God. and You'll have a new life. But you don't read your Bible and you don't really ever pray, talk to the God who saved you, you don't find out what it is that God wants you to do and and live it out regardless of the circumstances around you, is Christianity merely a philosophy? I mean, if we're not living out faith, I mean, what are we really doing here? Is Christianity something you believe or just something you believe in? Because faith always is followed by action. What you believe you will always act on. So if you're not acting on what God has called you to do, what is it? You're a Christian adherent? you know, is it nothing more than being a fan in the seats and hoping everyone else does well? And you like the celebrations when they do? Friends, if you're saved by faith, and it's the only way to be made right with God, then doesn't it just make sense that like the book of James teaches, if you have faith, then you'll show it.